The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words from Gramsci, I welcome you once again to the Time of Monsters podcast, sponsored by The Nation magazine and available on all major podcast platforms. So this week, I'm going to talk about monster. It seems like a, a very harsh and excessive word. <laughs> <laughs> it was about, you know, like a, a man who spent most of his life writing and editing comic books. All, all of the degree that he did the writing is, as we'll see, controversial. But I'll leave it to listeners to decide whether this term applies or not. But certainly a controversial figure. I'm talking, of course, of Stan Lee, who lived one of the sort of, you know, great American lives in many ways. You know, born of Jewish immigrant parents in 1922, uh, lived to like almost a century, dying in 2018. And during the course of the life, he started off at an industry that was really the bottom of the barrel of the cultural industries, which is the sort of comic book industry that grew up in New York in the 1930s, working for a publisher that was, you know, not known for its highest ethical standards or treatment of employees, known at the time as timely, and I mean, producing work that was, you know, widely despised as Really, the bottom of the barrel stuff sold to children for 10 cents. But over the course of his life, you know, became the kind of face of a company that later changes things to Marvel Comics and was the producer of the major superhero comic book characters of the 1960s, such as the Fantastic Four, the Hulk, the X-Men, Black Panther, and many more. And, and these characters became the basis for, for a global cultural phenomenon. The one that eventually conquered Hollywood. So this is like a, a major American life and a story well worth telling. And it was told recently in a documentary by released by Disney. And that documentary is causing a lot of controversy because the way that it told the story, a, l a lot of people feel is like, you know, not quite fully honest, let's say. So uh, to talk about this, to talk about Lee, his legacy, and also especially his collaborators. And I'll mention the artists, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko as the major ones. To discuss Stan Lee and his legacy, I'm very happy to have Elana Levin. They have published widely you know, about comics in places like the Daily Beast, and they host the podcast Graphic Policy Radio, which really gets into the nitty gritty of the intersection of comics and politics and public policy, even. And they've written especially about Lee and his collaborators, particularly Jack Kirby. So I'm very happy to have Ilana uh, on. And uh, yeah, let, let, let's start. Let's start with the, the documentary. What did you think of the documentary? Well, it shows my dedication and respect for your work <laughs> that I watched it because I was very grateful to have had other critics watch it so that I would not have to. But because you invited me on, I said, okay, I'll watch the beginning of this documentary. I made it through about the first 35 minutes. I feel like I got the, the gist. Mm -hmm. It's so bad. And I don't think that it's parts of it are bad storytelling and parts of it are bad because it's not true. I, I thought that the device of using sort of dolls and dioramas to illustrate some pieces of the story it's the kind of thing that, you know, I, I like the Todd Haynes documentary, like that documentary. I mean, the film, like the Karen Carpenter story, like it can be a fun technique. It felt a little bit random in dealing with Stan Lee, but more so I felt like all of the stories from his early childhood were so plug and play. You know, he's the same generation as my grandparents. 
he's the same ethnic group as my mm -hmm. grandparents, though he would you would not know from listening to anything he said. But the stories felt so completely like literally any white person of immigrant heritage living in the eastern seaboard would have had exactly the same anecdotes of their early childhood. And maybe if you're of a young generation where your grandparents are baby boomers, this would be a new story for you to hear. But to most of us, it was like, give, come on, guys, give me something. But I think it speaks to, in some ways, the way he has generalized and mythologized his own life, mm -hmm. that his early childhood stories were so deeply generic. And like, I understand he converted later, but it's bizarre to me to have someone not say they were raised in a Jewish household. It's just bizarre to me. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, I, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, and especially in the context of the sort of, you know, comic book industry that he emerged from in the 30s and 40s, which was, you know, like a very heavily immigrant dominated industry, as one would expect mm -hmm. from something in New York, particularly that was very working class. So there were a lot of uh, people who are either Jewish immigrants or the children of Jewish immigrants or the children of Italian immigrants. Yeah. It was not a very you know, a wasp industry and all. Like, and so, I bet that, and, you know, other documentaries and other books that have written about this, you know, like do play up the facts. So it is part of, I, I think you're, you're right to key on this issue of reinvention, you know. He is someone who reinvented himself and that's not unique to him. I mean, I think, you know, that might be true of many of the people that became involved with comic, but I think he reinvented himself with a particular vigor in terms of creating a public persona. And mm -hmm. this documentary takes that public persona like almost at face value mm -hmm. um, and maybe we should talk about like why that would be a problem so yeah. the very first statement that is in the documentary is a clip from 1966 and i was like kind of stunned that it starts with a line because in, <laughs> in that statement he says that you know the marvel comics group is the biggest publisher of comics in the world and like if you, we actually have like pretty good numbers on like, you know, what comics were selling because all the publishers had to register with the post office to sell subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And like Marvel Comics in 1966, they were selling, you know, not just far less than Batman and Superman. They were selling less than Archie and they were selling Ooh. less than like, of course. You know, and yeah. Uncle Scrooge and Donald Duck. I mean, like they were still like, but, but, you know, so, so, so. But I mean, for, and I mean, leaving alone that this is just the United States, like, you know, there were comics in yeah, exactly. Japan and for someone, I mean, he was, that was a promotional clip. He's a salesman. Of course, you're mm -hmm. going to say we're the best selling. And in a lot of ways, like, you know, Lee was a very American BS artist, you know, like a, a, mm -hmm. a, a type of figure that we're all familiar with. But so, I mean, that's a little line, but the big line that the documentary <laughs> kind of follows through is, is his account of the origin and creation of Marvel. And this is an account yeah. that he gave many times in many interviews, as well as some books that he, you know, allegedly he put his name on and uh, the uh, and essays that he put his name on. But I mean, the, basically the story is, you know, he had spent two decades as a sort of hack writer. His was dissatisfied. His wife said, you know, why don't you just uh, you know, write what you want? And then he decided to pursue that with an idea he came up with, which is the Fantastic Four. And then later he was sitting on a sofa and he saw a fly in the wall and that encouraged him to create a Spider-Man. And, and, you know, and then he like went on and created many other characters. And in creating them, he was assisted by people who carried out his vision. And that was the artist Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. He would bring them the ideas and he's very grateful for the way 
that they were able to bring his ideas to life. Now, that is the main kind of narrative that is being told. Well, what do we think of the story? It's just not true. And it's bizarre. Again, it's bizarre. But like people have repeated this as Pat, you know, and this documentary, which is literally propaganda for Disney, you know, who, who, who for and for whom the story of Lee as this sole genius who's no longer alive to say anything different, who invented all of their characters for whom nobody else should have any creative license. It, su it suits their commercial needs entirely. And it's just thoroughly debunked by any historian doing work on this, but based on the words of anybody else who was alive, who wasn't economically benefiting by Stanley pretending he invented this and that the artists were just operating as his hands. It is so glaringly at odds with real history. And it, I feel like the fact the documentary doesn't even cite what interviews are from what almost plays into this idea that this is this whole story that exists as truth, as myth, but has no, like that clip you began, you said it began with, they don't cite it. They don't cite this interview. And as a documentary, they, they know what these interviews are from. They know what the sound is from. But yeah, I was amazed at the degree to which they invisibilized the work of Ditko and Kirby. Like I thought there would be at least a little more recognition and a little less lying, but no, no. Yeah, no, no. I mean, I, I'm glad you mentioned this, this fact that this is corporate propaganda on behalf of Disney. Because we, we should mention, you know, the, these are issues on which there have been major lawsuits, some mm -hmm. of which are, have been settled and some of which are ongoing. But And there's two aspects to this. One is that as long as Lee was alive, he was of great use to the various corporate owners of Marvel. It, 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 the company that's known as Marvel went through many corporate iterations and is now owned by Disney. Through all these corporate changes, Lee was the kind of constant. Except for a little period of turmoil in the late 1990s, he basically worked for the company from 1939 until his death. And the reason he was able to hold on to a job is that he served the interests of the company, which is that he was the editor, say, you know, I, as management, I created these characters and the freelancers carried out my vision. And in lawsuits, that's a very useful figure to have. And as I mentioned, you know, like these lawsuits kind of continue. So you need to maintain this kind of myth. But there's a kind of secondary level of all this, which is that you also create a public persona, a sort of, you know, Walt Disney type figure, you know, or even uh, more mythically, like a sort of Uncle Ben or type character, or Ronald McDonald's character, who's the mm. sort of corporate figurehead. And, you know, like Lee made cameos in, you know, like dozens of Marvel movies and became a kind of public face of the company. And, you know, one could say, you know, there was once a biological human who took the name Stan Lee, but that creature died in 2018. But there was also a brand and it's actually a trademark, but the name Stan Lee and all the, you know, his associated traits were like trademarked and branded. And that brand actually continues to exist. It's actually owned I don't think it's owned by Disney, so that's owned by another company, but they, they work with the <laughs> so, so is this like, you know, this corporate brand, this Ronald McDonald, who is existing to serve both the sort of legal and branding interests of Disney. Yeah. Yeah. And with comics as a visual medium, doesn't it, if you step back, not pass the sniff test that a writer editor who is not an artist is somehow the visionary behind these characters who predominantly exist as drawings 
Like that's, if you just take a minute, you're like, yeah, that does sound strange, doesn't it? You know? <laughs> yeah, that totally sounds strange. And I think that that's a good thing, opportunity to get into, you know, what we actually think happened and who are the actual like inspirations or, you know, like the real hands that created the Marvel universe. And, you know, it's also, I, I think they actually, you know, like it's a collaborative industry. There are many artists and inkers, but the two names that are, you know, often singled out quite properly are Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. And they were never employees in the way that Stan Lee was. They were, they worked as sort of freelancers. But I, I want to like just talk about, you know, the figure of Jack Kirby a little bit because he had an alternative narrative and it's, it's worth tracing out this narrative, you know, like likely coming out of immigrant Jewish background, born Jacob Kurtzberg, likely a kind of reinvention, becoming Jack Kirby. Although I will note that Kirby, you know, A, never converted and B, never sort of denied his Jewishness. And in fact, yeah. there are like very explicit Jewish themes in his work going back to the late 1940s, you know, where he did romance comics that are about intermarriage and discrimination, you know, going back and forward to the 1970s where he created the work called The Fourth World, which is a kind of reimagining of the Bible in science fiction terms. But, you know, coming out of that immigrant Jewish background, coming to comics very early in 1941, co-creating with Joe Simon, Captain America, which becomes a huge hit for the company that is owned by Stan Lee's relative. Martin Goodman, as a falling out, they, they Simon and Kirby moved to DC Comics, where they create the Boy Commandos, which becomes another huge hit. Serves in wartime is, you know, in Europe, not on D-Day, but a few months later in the sort of battlegrounds of, of France, returns to America with Joe Simon, you know, basically creates the genre of romance comics, which becomes the dominant kind of commercial form of comics in the 1940, late 1940s and 50s. And then in the sort of 50s, starts to struggle. The partnership with Simon breaks up because the comic book industry is not is under a lot of stress, partially due to a sort of cultural purge and then also to distribution problems. And then finds himself ending up back at Marvel Comics with, with Lee, someone he had, you know, last seen decades earlier when he was working on Captain America. And so Jack Kirby, you know, has this, this figure with a long history of creativity and coming up with ideas. I only mentioned a few of them. And then, you know, coming to Marvel, his story, and it seems plausible based on all his past record, is that he brought a lot of ideas to Marvel. And if you look at, I think one of the interesting things is if you look at the early Marvel, they're a fusion of everything that Kirby has done before. He did like sort mm -hmm. of team books, like Boy Commando. He did romance comics. He did Westerns. He did monster comics. And you look at something like the Fantastic Four, and it's a combination of, you know, like a science fiction adventure, which he did before. A romance comic, because there's a lot of like love triangles, a monster book, because one of the characters is a monster. And so like, just like if it, one looks at, it, even Conan Beyond Lee, Kirby's account, if one just looks at how these comics come together, it seems like what Marvel is, is Jack Kirby bringing everything that he had done before and fusing it together. But what, what mm -hmm. do you think? And like, or like literally he has the challenges of the unknown for DC, which has four very archetypal characters who three out of four like map to what he does with the ones and the fantastic four which is not to say that it, there aren't pieces or things that stan brought to it and i'll always tell people like with spider-man if stanley had done nothing but write the words with great power also must come great responsibility which i know is also a paraphrase of a famous philosophical statement 
would be something. But that is not inventing all these characters yourself and treating these artists like they're just your hands and not brains as well. Yeah, like the 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 launch of the Marvel Universe as we know it today is not just because Stan told Jack what to make. It's not. Yeah. And we have records, all the works from Ditko and from Jack. And the other pieces, if you look at what did each of these artists go on to make without each other? The creative track record of Jack Kirby without Stan Lee. Yeah, and I'm not the first person to make this observation, but the creative work of Jack Kirby without Stan Lee is The Fourth World, which is one of the greatest works of fiction of all time. And Stan Lee's is Scriparella. Like, what is this? You know? I mean, Steve Ditko, like, is doing, the, you know, writing the question and, like, it's, you know, it's cool stuff. It's interesting, edgy stuff. Sorry, Steve Ditko was doing this edgy, interesting yeah, work yeah. by himself. And like, yes, Stan, again, like if Stan was willing to speak the truth of his contributions, they would still be, he would still be management and the boss who screwed over his employees. But they would also be interesting and noteworthy. And the fact, and yeah. the fact that he won't just say like, hey, I was like this brilliant marketer who figured out how to make comics feel highbrow by talking about them in a highbrow way to, to, to help older audiences who had fallen in love with the work of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko because they were making psychedelic artwork. I, you know, I figured out a way to help them feel justified in their affection for these comics by telling the media that reading comics was smart. That's kind of a small cultural contribution, you know? No, I'm absolutely, I'm, I'm really glad you said, you said this all because, yeah, I, mean, I think the documentary does a great disservice to Lee. And I think Lee's own mythologizing does mm -hmm. a disservice because it actually undercuts what his actual achievement was. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, again, I, I think it's worth looking at, you know, as you say, what, what they did before and after. And in Lee's case in the 40s and 50s, I mean, his real like major work or where he was really interested in was doing these kind of like Archie knockoffs for, <laughs> for Marvel, but they had a lot of teen humor and he did, he see that seemed to be his natural default mode of going into mm. sort of, you know, and then he brought that to the Marvel comics in terms of like the dialogue that he added. And I think that, you know, that, that jokiness, <laughs> which, you know, sometimes is irritating or whatever, but, but there's a distinctive kind of feature but also he was an editor right and like all, all yeah. and, and the work of editing is often invisible it's, it's harder to explain to people what an editor does than what a writer does right but the work of editing of like you know like choosing who to hire you know what books to put out how to promote them i mean that's all important stuff and, and he created a persona as we said he, he reinvented himself and his i mean the major character i will credit to stan lee is stan lee <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. And, the, and the voice that he created is a distinctive one and because that was the voice that was uh, he was uh, adding on to like all these books it became a distinctive part of the marvel it, it knitted the marvel universe together and in fact i think more than anyone else at marvel he helped it become a coherent universe. Like, I think, like, Kirby and Ditko and the other artists, like Gene Cullen and John Romita, they were building from the ground up. They were doing the sort of, you know, bottom-up building of a universe story by story. But, you know, he was at the level of Stanley where one could see, he was, because he was writing the writing for not all, but many of these books, he was able to see it as a universe and, and knit it together. And I think he's actually the first one to use the phrase Marvel Universe, which itself is, is like a major yeah. kind of thing, right? Like, like, so, 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 I mean, everything we're saying is not to deny. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. 
There's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Sign that Stanley has a contribution. It's just like it's a very different contribution than he himself claimed and the that yes. that the movie gives to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 But but is there I mean what do you think of like those Marvel comics of the sort of sixties and then also the work that, you know, I mean you mentioned the work that Kirby did did later because I think your voice is very interesting in this because I think unfortunately a lot of the conversation is dominated by boomers who kind of read those yes. comics when they first, first grew up. And, and I think that's created a distorting effect. And it's very interesting now to see, like, you know, younger people are coming to these comics, you know, without that sort of possessive yeah. memory and, you know, that, that ease of nostalgia and what they're kind of bringing to it. Because I think it's a very different kind of view. So, so yeah, well, mm-hmm. well, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on those comics? You know, it's funny also because like the, the two contexts in which people will refer to me as a younger person are in context of the labor movement and in context mm-hmm. of talking about Silver Age comics. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, I do talk to like younger, younger people, too, who also like yeah. really do find something compelling and interesting in the work of Jack Kirby in particular. I think people find, well, I should speak for me. I What attracted me to Jack Kirby's work was I I grew up loving a lot of mid-century visual art and seeing all of that reflected in Jack Kirby's art in like a narrative storytelling, like fun kind of a story was so exciting to me. It was almost like, here is the psychedelic stuff that you like from the album that you're listening to, you know, and I'm sure that's how it felt for young people of the day in that way. You know, here, like, you can see the Picasso and here you can see the, you know, like, you can literally see cubism and all these pieces forming together in the visuals, but it's, like, in an exciting story. And the characters that he's creating, you know, there's a, there's a difference between what, there's a difference between, like, a charitable and an uncharitable reading of it can be sometimes. And if you're willing to go in and say, like, here's people who are trying to tell stories of diverse, complex people existing in a world that often hates and fears them in some cases or Mm. doesn't understand what they're doing. I think that there's a lot of resonance for anybody who views themselves as being an outsider or different. And and, and Stan, you know, certainly is someone who was talked about and played up, often to the point of lying about the intent behind certain stories that were created, but the utility of that. You know, I... What I would what I would say to Eugene is what I would say about the fourth world is not what I would say necessarily about like, you know, the even the the best Fantastic Four or Thor stuff. So I guess it sort of depends like what what, what which is it that mm. you would want me to to speak about here? But well, no, I think that's a, that's a very interesting kind of point to me because I actually absolutely agree with it. Like I, I would not necessarily class the two together and there is a way in which you know like i i came to all this stuff like sort of backwards i think like, when i first tried to read the marvel comics of the 60s i, I have to confess like i could not see what the, all the shouting was about i mean the art seemed mm-hmm. obviously like you know wonderful as everybody says like energetic psychedelic dreamy but like i you know when i would read the actual words you know there's a lot it seemed like as it was 
like, you know, like a 40 year old man trying to, mm-hmm. you know, sound like a teenager uh, yes. and with all the sort of, you know, false use of slang. And then often mm-hmm. the kind of pretentiousness as with like, you know, the Thor with the kind of mock Shakespearean language. And then also like, you know, quite a bit of sexism with like, you know, the way the yeah. character like Sue Richards, the invisible girl. <laughs> it's kind of portrayed, and not not just in the sense. I mean, one could say, like you know, Invisible Girls actually like a pretty interesting commentary on like you know sexism and mm-hmm. the female role in society. And you know, like in some ways, that uh, yeah, I think in a sexist society, a female superhero would be an invisible girl. Right. But but right. but like you actually read the dialogue, and then you get like, oh, she's actually ditzy, and she like totally adores her. Like a boyfriend who becomes her husband, and and you know, like it, so, so a lot of it seemed dated. Whereas, so I couldn't read a lot of the Marvel stuff, and then, but I when I started to pick up the Fourth World stuff, yeah. like it seemed like totally like sort of like you know contemporary and, and sort of very like a, a very radical sort of commentary on the social changes mm-hmm. that America was going through in the sixties and seventies, and and then that actually made me appreciate like the sixty go back to the sixties stuff and see the under the current of radicalism mm-hmm. that was there, but that was kind of subsumed under the more mainstream writing. And I actually think, I mean, the way I see it and is that like sort of Kirby and Ditko were both kind of restrained by Stanley. They were, yes. you know, like they're, they're, they're more radical impulses. And oh, I can God. say where we're kind of, you know, in, in Ditko's case, radical impulses, that one, you know, could associate <laughs> with the right, like with the, the sort of Randian yeah. vision, right? Of yeah. radical individualism. Well, but, but, but within in Kirby's, you know, like, a, a lot of like sympathy for the youth, sympathy for even the feminist movement. He has these great mm-hmm. characters, the female furies. Yes, <laughs> I mean, like you know, like Jack Kirby is like when he co- when he like is making up Black Panther, he's like, we want to have a black superhero from Africa, and he has super science, and like he isn't, you know, like why why not have Africa have super science? Like why wouldn't mm. you know yeah. why, why why couldn't you have that be the story? Like. And and just breaking out the idea that like we have to be like less that that African characters would be lesser than mm-hmm. you know or like he's he's writing diverse characters into the story because he thinks it's exciting and cool and you know sometimes there can be moments of tone deafness I guess but like yeah. the intent is always so clear like you know and. I think one of the things we point to in terms of the difference between what Kirby is doing and what Stanley is writing over it, there's an amazing artist, analyst, Kate Willer, who has a series she's been writing called Kirby Without Words, where she removes the Stanley dialogue from the Jack Kirby pages. And you can see, oh my gosh, in this comic, like Sue Storm is rescuing the Fantastic Four. And in that comic, Marvel Girl is rescuing X-Men. But then when you see what Stanley wrote over it, he's undermining every heroic badass thing that these two women are doing for no reason. It's weakening the storytelling. It makes no sense. Like the story that Jack wrote is very clear. You can see Marvel Girl is using her mental powers to free them from this trap. And for whatever reason, the reason is sexism, like Stanley is writing over it how Professor X is telling her how to free them. Like, why? That's not shown in the images. Professor X isn't in the images. She's the one doing it. Why is he telling her what to do? This makes no sense. So it's undermining the storytelling that they're trying to that they're trying to do. It's and and it's not necessary at all. It doesn't helping at all. And I think that, you know, when you when you mentioned what was alienating to you when you went back to look at the 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 60s work at marvel 
was this very dated dialogue that was written by Stan Lee. Like, was that, what was that adding? Was that adding stuff to you? Like, that wasn't, that wasn't it. You know, I mean, with something like Dr. Strange in that era, people aren't, there, there are moments of funny wordplay and poetry in the dialogue, but like, you're, you're not reading it for that. You're reading it because it's got, a, it's got really psychedelic art from Steve Ditko of all people, right? But yeah, like the stories that Jack Kirby is struggling to tell are being blocked by sexism and like weird racism and weird assumptions. I mean, they're not weird. They're like reflective of the society they exist in. Mm. But that that but that he wasn't trying to hold or, or tell. I mean, you know, he's still a product of his time. But this is a guy who's progressive by the context of the day he's in, very much so in certain areas. And 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 then you, when you see exactly in like Fourth World, which is our it's just a fourth world is a shorthand way to refer to Jack Kirby's comics that he produced for DC in the early seventies, which included Mr. Miracle, new gods, the forever, people. forever people. And then he, because he didn't want to kick somebody off of a, their regular job, he said, screw it. I'll do Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, since this comic doesn't have a regular writer. And he's writing these books and drawing them and, and basically editing himself. You know, Mike Royer is inking and he is developing them into their own like capsule within the DC universe that is telling a story that goes between these four books, which is one of people, aliens and, 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 and humans fighting against a fascist threat that is also Richard Nixon. <laughs> that and and showing how regular people have to be empowered, you know, should be empowered to help and fight back. And we should embrace people who are different from us, including people who are very strange to us, who also want to fight back. And it has really interesting female characters who are badass in it. It has the first Japanese superhero in it. Um, I, I think he was predating any. I, I think Sunny Sumo was the first Japanese superhero in an American comic, I yeah, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure, but that, that actually sounds right to me, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and, and he's, and, and Kirby is, a, you know, a World War II veteran, and he's looking at the hippies around him and saying, oh my God, this is so cool, in a way that feels really genuine and not like he's like bandwagon riding, <laughs> but he, he's like excited about this, and he's like doing stories about why the Vietnam War sucks, you know, through a metaphorical lens. And it's so, he, he's so in love with this changing and exciting world around him and connecting it like to how he feels about fascism and Hitler and like the bad guy is Richard Nixon from space. And it's one of the greatest works of fiction, I think, period. Um, and he was doing it for DC Comics because Marvel wasn't giving him, because Stan Lee wasn't giving him the freedom or respect that he wanted. He wanted to tell this story of the new gods and Thor. And Stan was like, yeah, but you can't do any of these things. You can't you can't do any of these things. Yeah, no, I was like, can we please give you money and we'll leave you alone? Of course, they did not fully leave him alone, but they left him alone more than Marvel did. You know, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I'm really glad you said this because I think, you know, I mean, this is like obviously as all aesthetic things kind of contested and there are people who have for the Marvel comics of the 60s. But I've never felt that like I have genuinely like, you know, like from the start, like the fourth world was my way into Jack Kirby because it was he. It is a so fascinating and b like once I knew the biography, like it really feels like you know the work of a man liberated, like someone who had had yes. to hold himself back for a long time, and you know like now he's gonna go for broke, and now he's gonna tell everybody exactly you know like you know what his vision of the world is, and just politically, I mean since since you mentioned that, it is exactly an allegory of 
you know, the political struggles of America at the time, which are the political struggles that are still going on. Mm-hmm. And some, some of it like very sort of prescient or very sort of timely because part of the Richard Nixon, you know, space villain is he's, he's allied with the sort of religious right. And there's a sort mm-hmm. of figure based on Billy Graham called Glorious Godfrey, which is a kind of Philip Hunterville, you know, like depiction of a kind of televangel- televangelist, you know, yeah. leads people astray and, you know, uses the impulse of religion in an authoritarian way. Like, you know, there's a, those, those, those comics, like they cut much deeper than the Marvel works of the 60s. Or I think that was some of that stuff is in the Marvel work of the 60s, but you have to be an archaeologist to find it. Like <laughs> they're, they're kind of like, yeah. you know, they're buried yeah. under a layer of someone else's dialogue and captioning. Stan Lee. Let's think they're buried under yeah. a layer of Stan Lee. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, the, the, the piece that I wrote that I think, you know, really, I guess, put me on the map for a lot of people as someone who is a, like deeply engaged with the works of Jack Kirby was the piece I wrote for Daily Beast about how Glorious Godfried, this Billy Graham character yeah. in, in the fourth world comics is incredibly Trumpian. They both like, they both have very similar way of talking. They like to give people special hats to make them feel special, <laughs> but the hats actually look stupid, but they're all like, we love our hats that make us look special. And there's just, he, he's, he looks like he has physical similarities to Trump. Mm. It is uncanny, but he is really Trumpian in his approach to how he gets people to think about themselves and resign their freedom to him to make themselves feel better and more powerful to revel in the pleasure of judging and condemning others and to give away their freedom to feel like bigger people. It's, it's Trump. It's just Trump. It's crazy. No, no, exactly. No, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, if I were giving someone who doesn't know Jack Kirby's work, like, and he did like, you know, like literally tens of thousands of pages of comics over 40 <laughs> yes. years, but, but, but it would be those fourth world books. And then the other books, of the 60s that are like outside the fourth world cycle, but are also like, you know, really visionary works. But, but I mean, the, the, to me, that that is the sort of the core Jack Kirby legacy. And in some ways, I mean, to circle back, like it's a bit disappointing that Disney is so committed to, you know, this false narrative that they've created mm-hmm. because the other story, the actual story is itself so interesting. And, you know, as we said, like, you know, like not a total discredit to Stan Lee, like in the sense of, you know, like yeah. he, he himself did have, you know, we've been critical of many aspects of him, but, you know, like he did collaborate with Kirby and did bring much to the table and did, in fact, help popularize Kirby in a way that, you know, like I think one could argue that Kirby in the raw and Ditko in the raw are just like too much for the American mainstream. Like it's a little bit too much. You know, he, he found a way of building a bridge to readers to, to you know, help them assimilate this this very radical body of work. Uh, but it's a great story. I mean, it's a great story. The real story is a great story. And it's so disappointing that, you know, like for various economic reasons, they prefer to go with the fake story. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, we, I think, we, you know, we're both big fans of Abraham Josephine Reisman's Stanley biography which came out a couple of years ago. I had her on my podcast then to talk about mm. it. The book is fantastic. And, you know, a lot of people who are Stanley hardcore myth believers felt like it was, you know, hostile because it dared to point out anything that was untrue about Stan's story. But it, it's truly not. It is empathetic 
to the challenges and world that Stan came from and recognizes the ways in which she was a great innovator. And it's it, when people are unable to view it's inspiring historical figures in three-dimensional ways, that's that that just that destroys the historical record. It's untrue and it, it makes for less interesting understanding of the world. Like I, I really do recommend folks check out check out check out her book if they want to really understand Stanley and that whole period at Marvel. I mean, there's there's so much listen, I hadn't read other biographies of Stanley before, but I was very familiar with Stanley's history and I got so much out of reading Abraham Josephine Reisman's book that I didn't know coming into it. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I going to link to that book. And it is the best book about Stanley and really the best book about sort of the Marvel comics that's been done. I, th- I think there'll be future works. I hope someone writes a biography of Jack Kirby because I think that's also... I know. Yeah, that's I mean, a- we have Kirby, the king of comics, but like, I agree that I feel like there's more space that and the graphic novel from a couple years ago but like mm. there's, there's we need more there's so many figures in comics that are fascinating and that we do not have good history of like I, you know i think like larry hama who's still with us is like clearly like the most interesting man in the world and i'm still waiting for somebody to like interview yeah. like what what your life you were an actor on mash you invented gi joe's characters <laughs> You were like the only person of color in the room, you know, at these comics companies for years. Like, what was that all about? So, <laughs> That's a, and also, like, he had a toe in the underground comics, which yeah. is like he was uh, writing for comics where, like, you know, Robert Crumb and Trina Robbins were also appearing in, which is like, yeah, no, no. He, I mean, he'd be like a great figure for profile and a feature length interview. I, so, yeah, no, I, I think that there are like these, these great stories. And so it is disappointing. I'll also mention, you know, sort of closing out, there's, you know, like DC and Marvel are two rival companies and they're often in competition. And DC has their own documentary, which is available on HBO Max. Uh, So bad. uh, It's not, I wouldn't recommend it as a good documentary, but I will note that as a a slight difference, it acknowledges not all of the offenses that (laughs) DC's done, but it does acknowledge that, you know, Siegel and Schuster, the creator of Superman, got a raw deal. It acknowledges that Bill Finger, the co-creator of Batman, you know, got a raw deal, both in terms of, you know, not getting ownership of the character and not being even getting credit for the character. Yeah. So I think, you know, like, I just point that out as, you, and I, you know, like, overall, the DC documentary is not good, but it is a corporate, and it is exactly corporate propaganda in the way mm-hmm. that the Stanley documentary is, but it's a corporate propaganda that is, you know, on a few key points, a little bit more honest. So, so it's possible, right? Like it is yeah. actually possible. I, I bring that up just to underscore, you know, like the decision that was made by Disney to, 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 to put out something that is so like flagrantly untrue. Like that is like a choice that they made and they didn't have to do that. No, they minimized, like, even if you want to believe that the work behind in the event of a creating the Fantastic Four or the Hulk was 50-50. They did not even present it like 50-50. They just literally were like, Stan had ideas and he told Jack what to draw. It is, it's, it's just, it's, it's just worse than you could imagine as far as lying. And, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it discredits your ability to take them seriously about the, about Stan's real achievements. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so, so on that note, I, I want to thank you once again for appearing on. I will link to 
the Graphic Policy Radio Podcast, which I, if people enjoy this conversation, though I think many of you will have, I'd, I'd really encourage that for uh, a listening experience where you can both get popular culture and good politics, oh, you know, in you. One, one nice space. So again, thank you for appearing on. Thank you for having me. It's really a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much. 